we continue in our series that we've entitled Setting Us Straight, looking at the book of Titus. And if you're unfamiliar with uh, the New Testament, the New Testament's the second half of the Bible, and the book of Titus is about uh, three quarters of the way through uh, the New Testament. Uh, if you look around uh, books like First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and then the book of Titus. And uh, uh, we've been in this uh, series for the last couple weeks, and last week we learned about how Paul set not only Titus, but us straight on the issue of church leadership, and focusing in on the necessity of elders and their roles and their qualifications, that they're called to be responsible shepherds of the flock, and uh, as well as those who lead the flock in the area of oversight. Uh, but the question must arise where we finished up at verse 9, why do we need elders? What would be the main reason for elders, knowing the church is filled with adults? Uh, what would it cause uh, for uh, a group of men to have to have oversight and protection of the flock. Well, we're going to learn that today because Paul wastes no time moving from the issue of good leadership to talk about uh, the wolves that are out in the world called false teachers. And so let us uh, look to uh, Titus chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 16. So I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word, and then we'll ask a blessing on our time and get right to the text. Titus chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 5 to give us some context, and then to verse uh, 16. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, who is upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Let's pray. Father God, many in our body have studied this text this week in the opportunities and times of the small group gatherings. And Lord, we have wrestled with the thought that not all are pure in this world. Though they may sound right, though they may look right, though they may even do some, some noble things, Lord, not all who profess to be your teachers are, are from you. In fact, Lord, we are reminded of the words of your son, Jesus Christ, who said after he left, many would come into the world and say that they are Christ's. 
And so, Lord, I pray today that you would give this church and these people discernment, that they would know uh, good teaching, that they would uh, hold on to and grasp tightly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Lord, I pray for the leaders of this church, the elders that have the charge of, of uh, overseeing the doctrine of this church and overseeing, uh, Lord, the protection uh, of the spiritual well-being of, of each person here, Lord. I pray that you would give them boldness and clarity of thought and, Lord, minds that can plumb the depth of your word so that they can uh, be protective in their oversight. Lord, we just pray that as we uh, interact with those that find themselves in some of these teachings, Lord, that we would be uh, loving and caring to those who uh, have been susceptible to believing these deceiving spirits. But, Lord, that we would also, as our text will say, rebuke those sharply that propagate such doctrine because your glory and your fame is at stake. So, Lord, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for your word and what it's going to teach us. And we look forward to what you have for us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> in late, 2000, late summer of 2005, we all watched with bated breath looking at the weather reports in the Gulf of Mexico. A storm had just crossed Florida and now was heading northwest uh, with a bullseye right on the Gulf shores of Mississippi and uh, Louisiana. It wasn't the biggest storm we had seen, but it was a major one. It would be called Katrina. And Katrina would be a storm that would be uh, etched into our hearts uh, for all of our lives. Again, it wasn't because of the maximum sustained winds. It wasn't because of uh, so much the idea of the storm surge. But it was the aftermath of that great storm that would cause us to be reminded of it every time we hear the word hurricane. After years of depositions and testimonies, Congress asked the question, how could a storm that was moderate to severe in size cause the greatest amount of damage in the last hundred years from a financial standpoint and allow almost 2,000 people to lose their lives? What would have caused it? Well, after years of discussing that and talking, Congress determined through a bipartisan uh, committee the following. And it was written in big lettering so that we would never forget it within the report that was established by our government. And it said this, whether we're Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. Our assessment of this is true, that our crisis management with Hurricane Katrina failed because we weren't prepared to discern, we weren't prepared to discern the calamity that was before us. What they said was, it wasn't so much the storm that did the damage, but it was our lack of being prepared for the calamity that was before us. One of the big things that was seen was that many of the hurricane warnings that came, especially to the people of New Orleans, was, uh, was ignored. In fact, uh, after three days of hurricane warnings, it was only then that people began to head out of town. The reason was, after interviewing many people, was they said, we've had a lot of near misses. And every time you say that it's going to be bad, it never really is as bad as it was said to have been. And so I'm just going to hang out here. I'm, I'm not going to do the, 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 the things that need to be done to prepare. And as a result of that, people found themselves susceptible 
to the storm's surge in their lives. Well, outside of the meteorological uh, aspect of life, Christians as well are called to be prepared. The Bible tells us over and over again that there are those who are going to come into this world after Christ and the apostles left that would bring great calamity to our lives. And just like many who face the force of Hurricane Katrina, we, many of us as believers, find ourselves ill-prepared for what is about to come. It seems that in the context of Crete and Paul's writings to Titus, that Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that we be ready. In fact, it, it, there's a sense that once the, the reason why he's wanting elders to be established in every community was that trouble was already brewing on the island of Crete from a doctrinal perspective. And so elders were to be put in every town, in every church, to make sure that the people were prepared for the false teaching that would inevitably come. Well, likewise, we live in a world of false teaching. We live in a world where we must be doctrinally prepared, where we must have leaders who help us prepare with, if you will, crisis management, knowing that the issues are going to come, knowing that the problems are going to be in our midst. It's not a question of will it come, but when it comes, what will we do? I think it's kind of ironic, if, if that's the right term, that uh, they said that because of Hurricane Katrina, that one of the biggest issues in this study was the lack of transportation, mass transit abilities to get people out of the city of New Orleans. And yet, after the aftermath was all done, there was one parking lot that had more than 450 buses sitting in its parking lot, never touched, and of course now flooded. They had a plan, but they didn't execute it. Paul wants us to know, right off the bat, at the beginning of this letter, that we are to be ready and the tools are there for us to be prepared, but we have to implement those tools. Now, throughout Scripture, we see this over and over again. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Paul, again, is the center of this text. And Paul is uh, involved in saying goodbye uh, to a church that he loves. And he's saying goodbye to the elders of the Ephesian church. And in Acts chapter 20, as he's saying his goodbyes, as he's saying, I will miss you, he utters these words in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. He says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's speaking to the elders here. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number, meaning they'll come from the church, he's saying. They will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for these three years, I never stopped warning you each day and night with tears. Paul says, hey, you need to understand that just because you're in the church doesn't make you immune to the situations of the wrong teaching that is out there. And so again, Paul, on the front end, not saying goodbye, but now on the front end, 
of establishing elders on the island of Crete says it again. He, he makes the, a warning, uh, the alarm of the warning to come out loud and clear. I think of this idea of wolves in sheep's clothing, and I think of the old uh, nursery tale of Little Red Riding Hood. You remember, she was going to visit her grandmother, and the big bad wolf knew that she was coming. And so he got rid of Grandma. I don't know what he did with Grandma, but he got rid of her. And he disguised himself as Grandma laying in her bed. So Little Red Riding Hood comes in, never really suspecting anything out of order. And little by little, she comes closer and closer to who she thinks is Grandma. And she says, uh, Grandma, what big eyes you have. And Grandma says, the better to see you, my dear. Well, what big ears you have, Grandma. The better to hear you, my dear. Finally, Little Red Riding Hood said, What big teeth you have, Grandma. To which the wolf replied, The better to eat you with, my dear. And it's out of that point that he leaps out of bed just quickly enough to uh, run away from it. Little Red Riding Hood is able to avert disaster. Well, my friends, we shouldn't wait until we're that close to false teaching before we recognize our susceptibility to it. And so let's notice what the text has to say to us this morning regarding this incredible subject. And so how do we prepare ourselves for crisis management when it comes to doctrinal purity? The first thing that it involves in your outlines today is it involves devoting yourself to the precepts of Scripture. We know from the U.S. Treasury that it is said that officers that work in their counterfeit department focus in on the real deal so that they're able to spot an uh, imposter from a mile away. They don't look at all the counterfeit ways of doing things, but they make sure they know exactly what the U.S. currency looks like, all of its safeguards, and, and being able to understand the feel of it and the smell of it and, and all of the properties that are of great importance. And the reason why they do this is to pick out counterfeits from a great distance. Likewise, we as believers, when we talk about false teaching, would be, a, would be amiss if we did not speak to the subject of understanding what is true, pursuing what is right. As a little boy growing up in the Awana program, a verse that came to mind all the time was to study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed because he's rightly dividing the word of truth. And the question we have to ask this morning is, are we students of God's word? And that brings up two questions for us this morning. The first question in regards to this point is the question, what are we learning? What are we learning? Numerous places in Scripture, we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. In fact, Jesus called his followers disciples. The word disciple literally is the word learner. You're a learner. You are one who learns the teaching of your uh, rabbi, your teacher. And yet the sad thing in our world today and in our culture, especially within the church culture, is we do very little learning. We're content to hear others. We're content to uh, stick on the surface side of things and never challenge our minds to learn on our own. Peter speaks about this. I'll just read this for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn babies, we are to crave pure spiritual milk, 
so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Every one of us as believers should have a hunger and a desire to study the Word of God, to crave it like a newborn baby craves its milk. We should do this as a result of wanting to know and learn about our Lord and Savior. If you're involved in a love relationship here in, in marriage or, or dating someone, you recognize that because of your love for that person, you want to know everything about them. Likewise, it should be with us when it comes to God. But it shouldn't just remain on the spiritual milk that Peter talks about. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, just turn a couple pages from Titus over to the book of Hebrews to the right there. Hebrews chapter 5 explains some things that are of great importance for us as believers. Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verses 11, all the way through the end of the chapter. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, 11, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain to you because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He goes on and he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Let me ask this fundamental question this morning. Do you know more about Christ? Do you know more about the Bible? Do you know more about uh, the study of God today than you did a year ago? Can you look in your life and say, I have been revealed these truths through the scriptures. I have learned these principles. I understand the Bible now better than I did a year ago. If you can't, then you're failing to be the disciple, the learner that Christ has called you to be. This is why we spend so much time in so many different classes and, and so many different uh, Sunday school uh, ABF hours from the youngest to the oldest. And, and we want this to be done because we want to teach you, the people of God, what it means to know God, what it means to embrace God, and what it means to live for God, to know all that we can about him. But to make sure that you understand this, we're not just to be learners as disciples, but the word disciple literally means a learner who adheres to the truth of his teacher. And so this isn't just the head knowledge that will allow us to be able to be on Bible jeopardy, but it is the adhering to it, living out what the Bible has called us to do and to live. That's why we do these things. That's why we spend so much time on a Sunday morning preaching uh, from God's Word. It's of great importance. Now, notice the second thing that comes out. Not only do we need to ask the question, what are we learning, but who are we listening to? Now, this brings us into our text this morning. Titus chapter 1, verse 9 says that an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, in this world today, we have two choices. We can either listen to elders and preachers and pastors who possess the trustworthy message, who hold firm to that trustworthy message, 
or we can live lives pursuing that which makes us feel better. Uh, Paul spoke to Timothy about these types of people. In second, uh, just uh, probably on the same page, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Let me assure you of something today. These types of teachers fill our Christian bookstore shelves. They fill our radios and our television stations. They take up most of the media time that we see. And as a result of that, we have millions of people who are flocking to these teachers whether finding themselves in the pursuit of the cults, which, of course, if you're unaware, Mormonism is the largest, if you will, Christian denomination in the United States right now. It's the fastest growing. You say, well, it's, it's amazing. Well, it is. So going door to door is seemingly doing some work. Uh, then we look at some of the largest churches, Christian churches in the United States. I looked at a, a list of them, and, and within the top 20 there were about five to seven churches that I would say are heretical or teaching a false doctrine. And these are churches thousands upon thousands of people. We need to be ready for this and recognize our own susceptibility because these people don't wear pins that say FT, false teacher. But they wear suits, they, they sound great, they're, they're wonderful, they do humanitarian things, and yet what they preach, the Bible says, are doctrines taught by demons. And so we need to be prepared for it. And so we're either going to listen to those types of teachers, but what Titus is told is to establish godly men so that those will be able to listen to him. Now notice what he says. They are to hold firmly to the trustworthy message. Not only in verses 5 through 9 are they to exhibit the right character, but they are to preach the right content. This word to hold firmly literally means holding face to face. It carries the idea that the elder is clinging to the trustworthy message. He's grasped it, and he's holding on to it. What is this trustworthy message? It is the message, it is the doctrine of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his death, burial, and resurrection, and his call now for us to be disciples until he comes back home to take us back to heaven. Now, literally, this word holding face-to-face, clinging to these things, is that which the prophets and the apostles not only foretold, foretold, but also preached in the New Testament that we're seeing. And as a result of this, your elders must be men who are stable, who are stable in teaching these things. Now, the reason why they have to hold this doctrine face-to-face, why they have to cling to it, It's because there are two reasons given. Notice uh, the second part of verse 9. First of all, it is done so that he can encourage others. The idea here of encouraging others is to call near or to invite. One of the responsibilities of the elder is to be a cheerleader for spiritual progress in the church. And so what you should hear, one of the messages that you should hear from the church uh, elders is that keep growing Keep learning. Don't stop. I know it's difficult. I know temptation and sin are hard to deal with. But stay true to the Lord. Stay true to his scriptures. And God will bless and honor that. 
by never leaving us or forsaking us, by giving us the grace that is needed in our hour of turmoil or pain. And so we're to encourage that. That's the positive aspect of preaching. And you hear a lot of that from the pulpits. Because we don't want to be negative, because we don't want to speak on subjects like sin and hell and things like that. We want to be positive, and so we always are encouraging. But notice what the text says. It says there's a negative aspect of it as well. He says that they should encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The word refute literally means to expose. And so the role of any of your teachers or, or myself, the preacher, is not just to contradict, but literally in the Greek this meant to overthrow them in argument. It is the practice of calling out sin and disobedience. Some time ago we, we had a small group at our house and we got a knock at the, at the door. And two men, very well dressed, identified right away that these were were Mormon young men. And uh, they had come and said, we would like to talk with you um, about Jesus Christ. And I stopped him right then and there. And I said, I know who you are. I know what you believe. And I want to first of all say, I like your zeal. I know what you think you're doing is right. But let me tell you something. You're wrong. You have devalued my Savior and my King to be just like me. And that is out of bounds. And so I'd be willing to talk with you. I'd be willing to explain what the true gospel is. But understand, I am not going to allow you to come into my house and demote Jesus Christ to be a created being. I want to show you love. I want to show you uh, what the Word of God says, but we're going to play by my rules, not your own. The other guy, they looked at each other and said, well, that's the biggest and most amazing response we've ever heard. And I said, and he says, well, he's just a caterer. My catering van was out there. <laughs> they never came back, and I've had those encounters with Jehovah's Witnesses as well. But we need to be able to refute. Sometimes the text is going to tell us, and I'll get to it in a moment, to rebuke them sharply. My friends, my brothers and sisters, Jesus is at stake here. Our Savior. And these people are peddling the gospel of Jesus Christ, that which takes us from hell to heaven, and they're peddling it for their own selfish desires. And we need to be careful, and we need to recognize that doctrine does matter. It matters. And we need to be understanding of that and recognize with great jealousy that no one will take the glory of our God in heaven away from us. And so what we do is we need preachers, we need teachers who expose God's word to us, but also expose those who preach something against it. Paul names names. And sometimes I think because we want to be politically correct, we don't name names in churches. But he calls out Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, stay away from them. They're bad people. Their stuff is spreading like gangrene. Get as far away from it as you can. And so where's the first beginning? The first part, the place of dealing with false doctrine, is number one, making sure that you are a learner. 
That you are a Psalm 1 kind of person. Day and night, you're meditating on the law of the Lord and you're delighting in it. Number two, make sure that you are understanding what you're reading, who you're reading from, who you're listening to, and asking the question, is this one, as verse 9 says, who is holding firmly to the trustworthy messages that has been taught? Even Paul said, hey, after after getting done preaching, I'm the great apostle Paul. And what does he say? He says to the Bereans that they are far more spiritual than I believe was the Thessalonican uh, church because they went back and studied the scriptures to see if the great apostle Paul was right. And that's the job of each and every one of us as we consume the teaching of God's word. Notice the second thing this morning. Not only does it involve devoting ourselves to the precepts of Scripture, but it also involves defending against the ploys of swindlers. The text goes on to say the reason why we need these men in our church is because there are many rebellious people. He doesn't say there's a couple. He doesn't say there's a few. He doesn't say they're few and far between. He says there are many Now, what allowed these men to go unnoticed? Notice what the text says. These men somehow had been able to involve themselves with their talk to ruin whole households, which I'll get to in a moment. And what Paul does is he says, hey, these guys are a lot like your culture. They seem to fit right in. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Literally, it's lazy bellies. I like that. Listening to a message Alistair Begg preached, and he, he was quoting this verse, and he says, liars, evil brutes, and lazy bellies. And he says, that would be a good rock group title. He says this testimony is true. The Cretans were known to be people who were liars. They were known to be people who were unsophisticated. And unsophisticated, they really didn't care what people uh, said. They just consumed. They just consumed and weren't worried about what they were consuming. And that didn't just have to do with food, but it had to do with intellectual issues as well, spiritual issues. They had, had, uh, they had propagated a lie that on the island of Crete, uh, the grave of Zeus, the great god of Zeus, uh, was, was there on Crete. And so the Greeks hated uh, the Cretans. They had even created a word uh, to be a Cretan. Don't, and we use that terminology in the uh, uh, American culture. My, parent, my mom especially would always say, you Cretans, when she would see our room. And little did I know what she meant was that we're liars, evil brutes, and lazy bellies. My father would say that testimony is true. But these guys fit into the society. It wasn't hard for them to propagate lies of the doctrine of Christ. It wasn't hard for them to live pursuing their own sinful desires and gains under the cause of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. Be very careful when your preachers pursue cultural relevance over doctrinal integrity. Now, you know me. I am all for making the Word of God practical and relevant. But there's a line that we need to be careful of. 
We need to be careful that we don't allow culture to infiltrate itself in the pulpit and in the lives of those elders, in fact, in the lives of any Christians. So that when people look at believers, they can't say, well, they're liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. But they'll say there's something different about these Christians. They're not heavy in the pursuit of gain, but they love to serve. They love to give. Now notice these are blatant things that are taking place. Within this, we see that first of all, our ministry should be different than that of culture. The second thing, just very quickly, that I have in here, it doesn't fit in the outline at all, but I see the grace of God here. And the grace of God that gives me a great amount of peace because God doesn't just go after. He had sent a man, his star apostle Paul, to an island called Crete that's filled with these evil brutes and, and lazy gluttons for one job, to save them. And what I see with the grace of God is God doesn't just save the Pharisees like the Apostle Paul who are moral, but God has a heart for those that seem so far away from the gospel. And there are some Cretans in your life. There are some Cretans at your workplace. There are some Cretans that live down the street from you that God is calling you to today. And you say, I never could lead them to the Lord. They use profane language. They, they're doing all sorts of uh, drinking and, and drugs. They'll, they'll never turn to Jesus. They'll never do that. And yet in this book, we see the grace of God being extended to those individuals. Now notice these ploys of these false teachers back into our outline. These false teachers were active in their ploys, and they were deceptive with them. They were deceptive. Notice what the text says. They're mere talkers and deceivers. The word mere talkers here literally means empty speech. They were full of hot air. They sounded smart, but in the end they weren't saying anything of substance. Shakespeare once said of people like this that they're full of sound and fury, but they signify nothing. These men rattled and babbled about all sorts of things, and they tried to deceive. This word deceive literally means one who is a seducer and misleader of the mind. And they did this following or paying attention, the text says in verse 14, to Jewish myths. Can I tell you, I'm teaching a theology class right now on Sunday nights, and we've got a great number of people. I'm so encouraged by the number of people that we have. And we talked about the how, what kind of theology we uh, believe and understand. And one of them that we brought up was the issue of tabloid theology. And tabloid theology is the kind of stuff that you see on the National Enquirer. Jesus is coming May 2011. A vision of Mary was seen here and there, and and people just flock after this stuff. And we talked about some years ago on a viaduct in Chicago, a water stain had just presented the most beautiful picture of the Virgin Mary and the baby. And they had to close down the highway so that people could come and make their pilgrimages to this watermark, if you will. And we fall prey to this stuff. We fall prey to these kinds of myths. Some of you have books in your libraries 
that talk about a Bible code. That you put together the right letters and the right numbers together and you'll know the true will of God. This, these are Jewish myths of our day. And we suck this stuff up. We pursue these things because they sound biblical and they're not. You want to know what Jewish myths are in your life? Is when you read more speculation than you do divine revelation. When a man says, it takes a verse out of context and builds a whole uh, superstructure of belief, and he never backs it up by comparing Scripture with Scripture to ask the question, is my speculation true or not? I can tell you, you can fill a sanctuary with people who want to listen to speculation. And Paul says, these guys are deceptive. Stay away from this. In the book of Romans, chapter 16, I'll just read it for us. Romans, chapter 16, verse 18, it says this. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way. They are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. In another place, Paul says that they worm their way into households to change and to take over weak-willed women. And we need to be careful of this deception. Notice the second thing, it's deliberate. These men weren't just succumbing to a wrong belief, but they were doing it for a reason. They had an established belief system. They were a part of the circumcision group, verse 10 says. And he says in verse 10 that they are rebellious people. Literally, it means insubordinate, uncontrolled, and unwilling to submit to authority. Just as a way of reference, this is the same word, rebellious, or insubordinate, that is in verse 6 when it says, A man who has children who believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And so an elder's children can't live like the can't live like the false teachers. They can't be rebellious like that. They can't be insubordinate in their relationship with their father and within the church. But these men were deliberate. They were insubordinate, and they do it for one reason. Notice a verse, let's see here, verse 11, the end of verse 11. They teach the things that they ought not to for the sake of dishonest gain. Some of the old uh, translations call it filthy lucre. I had a friend named Luker in school, and he, he was filthy, and he fit the filthy Luker thing, and he, he would love to hear me say that about him because uh, he, he seemed to take uh, filthiness to a, a new level in many ways. And yet these guys were deliberate. Jude called these men that they rejected authority in regards to their pursuit of gain. According to the Atlanta Constitution uh, newspaper, a congressional congressional, um, fact-finding mission was done of six of the major uh, TV evangelists in the United States. And the question was, are they being above reproach in their financial involvement? And this is what our congressmen found. They found that each one of these preachers 
took a personal salary between 1.5 and 2.5 million dollars. The first one was Benny Hinn, TV preacher who runs World Healing Center Church in Grapevine, Texas. Hinn is known to travel the globe conducting faith healing revivals, and he lives in multiple houses, the smallest being a seven-bathroom, eight-bedroom mansion overlooking the Pacific Ocean valued at more than $10 million. And it was claimed in the report as a parsonage. Let me just tell you, I'll take half of that. The Reverend Creflo Dollar, I don't know how he got that name, but it fits, World Changers Church International in College Park, Georgia, Dollar drives a Rolls-Royce, has large homes in Georgia and two more in New York. He is asked to provide a list of all vehicles provided for himself, his wife, board members, and ministry employees. And the congressional finding was that they had spent more than $21 million on vehicles. Joyce Meyer Ministries in Fenton, Missouri. Senator Grassley asked Meyer and her husband to explain expenditures like a $23,000 toilet with a marble top, a $30,000 conference table in their home, an $11,000 French clock, and a pair of vases in their bedroom worth more than $19,000, as well as about $1.4 million in unaccounted revenue. Kenneth Copeland Ministries in Newark, Texas. Copeland was asked to explain how cash offerings are handled during the overseas crusades because of offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands that have multiple millions of dollars, as well as his own military, military ministry jet and layovers, long layovers in Maui, Fiji, and Honolulu for dozens of his staff members. And finally, Bishop Long in, New, uh, in Lithonia, Georgia, New Birth Missionary Baptist Church, while Long says that he does not take an income from the church, he takes a free will offering, which last year exceeded $2.3 million. And he took all that money home in his $400,000 Bentley. And you say, Tim, you're being unfair. I'm saying what our government has said. And it's a damning argument for us who say we uphold the word of God to live like that. Remembering that Jesus had, didn't have a place to lay his head. Where Paul said, I give everything free of charge. We need to be very careful, and I say this to myself more than anybody else, to not do ministry out of gain. To not pursue ministry for our own desires. These men did. And I will tell you, it's not hard to use ministry to do that. I'm sure that they didn't start out this way, but it is so dangerous. And that's why we want to be so very careful with our financial understanding of, of things here at the church. And I want you to know a couple things. Number one, no pastor or elder ever sees what's donated to this church on a personal level. It's not done that way. Number two, no staff pick their salaries. The staff are pulled out of meetings, and, and the stewardship team is a part of that, and men and women from the congregation are a part of that discussion, and they're not a part of that. And the reason why is we know it is dangerous to start mixing ministry with money. 
The final thing that is articulated in this text is that it's destructive. As a result of their deception and deliberate motives, they are producing some incredible results, and that is, verse 11 says, they are ruining whole households. There's a debate on whether households means families or does it mean whole churches, and it really doesn't matter. Their damage is huge. And so what good doctrine should be doing in encouraging and uplifting those who hear it is bringing great trouble to the people that were hearing it because they were teaching things they shouldn't have taught. And as a result, what Paul says is they are detestable in verse 16. They are disobedient and they are unfit for doing anything good. Why? Because their teaching is off base. And what made it off base? Just a couple things. Number one, they taught a works-based salvation. They taught that, were, or that salvation was achieved by the issue of circumcision. And that's untrue. Nothing. You cannot add one thing to your salvation. There's nothing you can do, but it is by the mere and sheer grace of God and his mercy upon us that he calls us from death and brings us to life. There's nothing else. Number two, they pursued speculation instead of revelation, the idea of Jewish myths. They pursued legalism as a way to hinder men and women from God. Notice verse 14. It doesn't say it as clearly in the NIV, but it it literally is the commands of men. We need to be careful that we don't start creating this dichotomy of rules. Well, your hair has to be a certain length, and you can't have earrings, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. We need to be careful of teaching that says those things. And so what they began to do is they began to say that the good things that God has declared are now no good. Notice what he says. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. These guys were saying things like marriage and things like family were no good, where God has said they are good. And this brings up a great understanding that when false teaching comes around, it isn't just a little bad. It's all bad. So you're in the buffet line at your next restaurant, and the manager comes up and says, just I want you to know we have just 10% strychnine in all of our food. But all the rest of it's all good. Help yourself. I've heard over and over again, well, I don't agree with everything that he says, but a lot of what he says is good. Just 10% of the strychnine is in there. Good luck. We need to be careful. And as a result, these men are corrupted in their consciences and in their minds. They are totally wrong. There's nothing redeemable of these individuals. And so that leads me to one final point, and I've got to close here in the next couple minutes. And that is it involves developing a plan to survive amidst false teaching. So what do we do? We've identified who they are, some of the pursuits of of how they live, how they minister. What are we to do next? The book of Jude helps us with this, and I'll come back to Titus in a moment. But Jude helps us in understanding this. Jude is all about contending for the faith and dealing with false uh, doctrines. Turn to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, and one page over is the book of Jude. And I want to close with this with a couple minutes left that I have. And this is what it says. In verse 17, one chapter, Jude 1, 17, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in last 
time, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. The first step is seen right there in Jude is that we remain faithful. The way that we begin to deal with false teaching is we remain faithful. We stick to the word of God and we hold to it and we make sure we rightly divide the word of truth. That we don't veer to the left, we don't veer to the right, but we stay locked into the faithful message as it has been taught. And that means uh, involving ourselves in, in, in remaining faithful and building our faith. Some of us are so lax in the growing of our faith and it, t- it's, it takes a nudge from leaders and say, hey, you got to get involved in the Word. you got to start learning what the Word of God says. It involves praying for protection and wisdom and discernment. It involves staying grounded in God's love. Knowing that false teachers are a prophecy that Jesus is coming back very soon. As these things multiply, it shows us quicker and quicker as the Lord's day of returning to take us home. Number two, we are to rescue the falling. He says, be merciful, verse 22, to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. In our small group this last week, we had two individuals out of maybe a group of 10 or 12 uh, that were there that night that had been a part of false teaching in their life. And both of them, almost to the point of tears, spoke of the damage that was done. And and I think in both circumstances, damage still being done as a result of them leaving these false doctrines. The the damage that it put on the family, the damage that it has put that uh, there are those that are ostracized as a result of that. And so we need to recognize not all people that hold the false teaching are false teachers. Some have just found themselves drowning in bad doctrine. And our job is to lovingly minister to them and bring them out of it and to love them and lead them to the truth. That's why in Titus it just says very quickly that we are to do this so that they will be sound in the faith, verse 13. They'll be sound in the faith. And so some of you have brothers and sisters uh, that find themselves in in debunked... uh, Doctrines and theologies, love them. Don't push them away. Love them. Minister to them. Show them what the trustworthy message is all about. And finally, rebuke false teachers. This word rebuke, it says uh, in, uh, let's see here, uh, verse, uh, let's see here. I didn't write it in my notes, so let me find it real quick. Uh, Let's see. Rebuke. Uh, verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Literally is the word muzzle. And you say, Tim, you didn't give those Mormons an opportunity edgewise to bring in any kind of word. I didn't because I want to rebuke them. I want to muzzle them. I want to expose them. Remember, as I said before, the doctrine of Jesus Christ is at stake. And so, the next time a knock comes to your door 
or a man is on the television preaching that sounds real good, but you're not really sure because what you're seeing around it just seems to not add up. Instead of hiding under your table when that knock comes at the door, you be ready. In my same small group, and I love them, and God bless them, and I think they're probably a vast majority of us as people, I asked the question, when that knock comes, what do you do? They said, we turn off the lights and wait for them to leave. How many of you do that? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But that's not the kind of life that Titus is being called to. He says, you're the ones who will stand up and will speak on behalf of your king and your Lord and your Savior and say, no. What you're teaching is from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. And I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And I'm going to tell you that and try to, in any way possible, lovingly lead you to the place of teaching the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean you slam the door on them. That doesn't mean you mock them. But you generously and caringly tell them that you will not condone such teaching. It's like my mom used to say, I will not condone that kind of talk in my house. You won't either. It's your king they're talking about. Let us fight for our king. Let us fight for his message and let's live up to it as he has called us to so that we will be prepared when the crisis comes. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. Lord, it's not fun to talk about these things. And yet we need to. We need to recognize that the sins of false teachers are all around us. And that, Lord, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some in our midst that are reading their stuff and, and uh, involved in, in ways they shouldn't be with teaching and ministries like this. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment, that you would give us the ability to know what is right and what is wrong. Lord, you would give us the, the strength and the courage to call things out, to not just sit by the wayside, but to engage those that are involved in these ministries. Lord, just a quarter mile up the road, we have hundreds of our neighbors and our friends and, and people that we are called to love that week in and week out are, are going to a church and being told that you're just one of us and are being told that we can become just like you, little gods, and Lord, that's from hell. And we need to pray for that. We need to do all that we can to change that. Because your word and your reputation is at stake. And so, Lord, let us have courage. Let us be good, solid learners. So that we are able, whenever anybody asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have, we're able to do it clearly and with grace. So, Lord, lead us to our classes now with a new sense of why we go to these classes so that we will be able to refute those who go opposite of the truth that we've been given. Give us the opportunity now to fellowship and to praise your name as we gather with one another. Send us forth from this place in your peace and in your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.